Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about making movies from the set perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about The Majestic, a 2001 film starring Jim Carrey and directed by Frank Darabont. Over at Rotten Tomatoes, its tomato meter score is 42%, and the critics' consensus reads, ponderous and overlong, The Majestic drowns in forced sentimentality and resembles a mishmash of other better films. Well, that's harsh. But as usual, my guests and I aren't concerned about what the critics thought. What we are focused on today is one aspect of this film, specifically what it was like to be a background artist or extra on this set. A little bit of exposition is in order. Myself, I worked on The Majestic as an additional second assistant director, and my specific role on the crew was to organize and oversee the background artists throughout the film. The film itself is set in 1951, which complicates the background process immensely. First, since it's a period piece, you can't just put out a call for 50 townspeople. You have to provide them with clothes, which means fitting them into clothes, which means casting them in advance. It's a huge amount of work for the wardrobe department before filming even begins. And second, because a majority of the film was shot in the historic town of Ferndale, California, about four and a half hours north of San Francisco and an almost 10-hour drive from Los Angeles, you don't have a pool of professional background artists to call upon. Rather, you cast locals, most of whom have never even been on a movie set before. Three of those folks have joined me today. First up, Natasha Wing. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you. Now, Natasha, tell me a little bit about what your background role was on the film. Well, I was cast as housewife number 62, so that was my number, and for the most part, I was paired up with Brian, who was the milkman. Whatever, the milkman made his uh, way around town, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Natasha, welcome. What are you doing now? Um, I'm a children's book author, and I was during that time. Oh, very nice. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Next up, Anne Bugby Farley. Welcome to Below the Line. Hi, Skid. And tell us a little bit about your role. I was given the title of the music teacher. Um, I was Majestic Extra number 61. Uh, They gave me a nine-year-old daughter as well, um, which she was a lovely little local girl named Jessica. Oh, very nice. And Anne, what are you doing now? I am recently retired uh, in December from being a registered nurse case manager. So I am enjoying retirement here in the little Victorian village of Ferndale. Oh, you still live in Ferndale. That's great. I sure do. We'll talk some more about that as well. And then finally, in our fourth chair, we're joined by Raquel Atkinson. Raquel, welcome to Blow the Line. Hi. Yes. So I have no idea what my character name was, but I spent most of my time with Natasha's husband. And what I do now is I am a Jill of all trades at a tech sports startup in San Francisco. All right, folks. Well, glad you're all here today. And so I think as I introduced, the experience you guys had as background was unique. Before we go into that in more detail, let's talk a little about Ferndale itself. I know that Frank Darabont chose Ferndale because of its historic nature, because it fit the small town he envisioned for the film. Yeah. Ferndale, very small town. I moved there when I was 14 from the Bay Area. So imagine that. I think that it has a really good culture sort of thing. I think Anne could probably touch on that a little bit more than I can. Yeah, thanks, Raquel. Well, my family's been in Ferndale since 1857, basically pioneers that homesteaded in this area. And we still have homestead cabins and eight ranches and such. Interestingly enough, you mentioned Frank Darabont. 
um, he actually came to my house when they were looking for homes for people to live in um, while they were here for the people like Frank and Jim Carrey. My house was considered as a home, so Frank came with his assistant director. Anyway, he did not end up staying at my house, which was kind of a relief because what they had my friend Carol do for Jim Carrey was actually move out of her home, everything out of her home. And Jim Carrey brought in all his own furniture. And I wasn't really ready to be uprooted like that. So I'm glad that Frank did not pick my home. (laughs) (laughs) It can be disruptive when a movie comes to town. Let's talk a little bit more about what that was like for all of you. So with the location scouts coming in, that was the first thing. I was working at Village Baking and Catering. The location scouts came in, did all this stuff. They took over the town. And of course, for somebody whose family lives in Ferndale, it was disruptive. I thought it was good for business. A lot of people were a little peeved sometimes. Let's see, being disruptive. There were some people in Ferndale that did not want, one gal literally complained that she couldn't walk her dog down Main Street when they had it marked off and it interrupted her day. And I mean, for me, it was being a Ferndale local and still here, it was just a breath of fresh air. I worked at a hospital as a nurse at the time in obstetrics and I was able to totally remove myself from my life and be part of this movie scene. It was a joy for most people here in Ferndale, but there was always a few people who don't like the disruption of their routine. And this is Natasha. Um, I didn't live in Ferndale. I lived north of there in McKinleyville. um, The only disruption was the long days that we put in once the movies got going. Um, (laughs) Your life was on hold (laughs) and nothing got done. My poor husband, before he was on the set as an extra, he would have to cook or do the laundry and do all that kind of stuff because I'd come home and I was just wiped out. But it was a fun disruption. Like Ann was saying, it was just really a, a great way to put your life on hold and go into another historic time and meet new people. So that was the fun part. It was a put your life on hold. I put my semester at college on hold to be in this movie. And I tell people that at all the, you know, the companies I started, they would say, do you have a fun fact about yourself? I'm like, yes, I was an extra in a movie for three months. I took a semester off of school. Raquel, you were 19 at the time. Is that right? Yes. I was brunette at the time. (laughs) (laughs) We all had wigs. We all were. We all were. We were all brunettes at the time. That's true. Although it's really funny when you talk about that, because I think Debbie Hartman, she was one of the few people they let keep her hair because she had really long, bright red hair. And it was hard for them to get it up under a wig. And then partway Mm -hmm. through, Mary Love was able to keep her regular blonde hair. But my hair was just crazy. It was just every day it looked different. So they're like, put a wig on that one. (laughs) So I had a black wig. And then it was funny when you took the wig off and you saw people in real, you know, your other world. They're like, oh my God, I thought you had black hair and you're actually brunette. That's so weird. That going through that process every morning, riding my bike over there, then going into hair and makeup and having them put all that stuff on my face and then putting my hair up. And it was just like, it's a unique experience. Let's just put it that way. You know, that's great, Raquel. Since we're on the topic of that, it was costume first, then hair, then makeup. And that was the part of the day that I felt like a star. I mean, the gal, Michelle, who would do my makeup, which the lips were great and there was very little eye makeup, which worked for me. Her normal job was to work with George Clooney and he was on vacation. And she'd also done Anne Margaret. And then she was doing my, my daughter Haley's hair because she was also an extra. And I'm like, okay, Haley, you are, you're in now, you know. <laughs> Ketty, who did our hair, they gave me a, a wig too because my hair was crazy. But afterwards, they regretted it. It took them so long to get all of my very, very thick hair up in that wig every morning, that red curly wig. 
it was a, it was fun for me though. I just sat there and got pampered. I have in my notes because I I did a little diary for some of the time I was there. Let me see. It was March twenty sixth, twenty thousand and one, and I have a note that Laurel did my hair, and she was supposed to be at the Academy Awards for um, doing hair for the Grinch, but she <laughs> had to be on the set. She had a black Prada gown that was all ready to go for the the Academies, but um, instead. Uh-huh. Her- her mom went for and she did hair for the majestic so she was the lady who did my wig the only and the and the reason i became an extra on the majestic was because i went to a uh, an internship interview for a news station in eureka and i didn't get it and then i came mm. back to town and my mom's like go and do the extra stuff and they're like you're going to be a body double a stand in but then it didn't work and so like okay you just be an extra and i remember remember rowdy kelly yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he's like, you're going to be a, a body double. And then they said, okay, well, you're not really going to fit this, but you can be an extra in every scene. I remember that, Raquel. I do remember. And I remember thinking, yes, you're 19 and I'm 45. You do fit <laughs> into those beautiful clothes. <laughs> that was great. And what about the hats? Did you guys wear hats? Oh, gosh. I no. did every single time. And I remember I'm a 70s girl from Humboldt County. I was used to wearing nothing and, you know, peasant <laughs> tops and jeans, right? And I had to have a checklist because every time we went to set, I had to go hat, gloves, high heels, oh, clip earrings, yes. um, pur- purse, purse. I didn't even carry a purse back then. And I remember all that, all those accessories was great. It, I had to have a checklist for all that to when, when they said it's time to go to set. I would like, I had everything shoved in my purse and my had to take my tennis shoes off and change. And that, that was fun. But we waited around so much, we didn't wear all of the extra stuff all day long. I remember one night, there was a continuity thing with the diner. Part of my back was in the picture. And we waited around till 2 a.m. And I had to keep going in there and going in there and going in there. And it was just, it was so cool to me. Because growing up, this was like my dream. I wanted to be an actress. And then obviously, that's not going to happen. The coolest thing. But remember, do you guys remember just being around till 2 to 3 a.m.? Yeah. Yes, Raquel, I was on that same night, one of those nights, and I had to be hurried up their skid. You, you said, green dress, green dress, we need the green dress. They want the green dress. And that. it was me. And <laughs> there was no people mover. There was, and I had to, you know, like, I'm 45 years old. I have to like run from the Ferndale Theater where we were in holding yep. to yes. the di- the diner at the end of the block. Like I was told to hurry to set by my boss Skid, <clears throat> and uh, I was placed right next to James Whitmore and not far from Jim Carrey. And then Frank Darabont rolled the scene. And I thought I was supposed to do something that I had done in a prior scene right there. Until that very moment, I didn't understand actual. Uh, movie magic and basically they had a piece of tape on the floor and they did not want me to move but I'm an intelligent person fairly intelligent they didn't tell me your job right now is to hold perfectly still so I did not and oh my god everybody was up in arms I was like the outcast of the moment and they said uh we don't need her anymore (laughs) for that scene because I feel and I felt terrible I just felt awful and you know how you you feel for one moment in time, you never forget it. But overall, the experience was lovely. But I, I kind of hate to admit that I was the person that ruined one of the take in The Majestic. Uh, ruining one take. I'm, I hope it doesn't keep you up at night, Anne, or didn't for very long. <laughs> There's oh, it, always going to be something. A couple days. A couple but, days, that was all. But it is the challenge of um, uh, shooting just parts of a scene and trying to bring in certain people. The Yes, the challenge, as I mentioned earlier, that none of you were professional background. And so some of the things that 
the film crew, the director, the ADs might take for granted, we couldn't do in this case. I do know that I spent a lot of time with you overall talking about general film things, uh, guidance and sort of what the principles were, understanding that if background is aware of what their role is and how it works and understanding the bigger picture, you guys will do amazing things, um, I truly believe. Um, now, of course, since my job was just to focus with the background, I didn't necessarily have all the other distractions, what was going on set, and could spend time with you as a group to basically create a little army of uh, Ferndale background and that we were available when they needed us on set. Well, and you have that standout story of being embarrassed, <laughs> but that happened to me at the train station scene. I don't know if you remember that scene when we were down, was that Fort Bragg? Yes, that was in Fort Bragg at the yeah. Skunk Depot. I don't know if you remember, it was so hot that day and we had our outfits on and our hats and everything else. And I was in one scene behind where Jim Carrey was kissing uh, Laurie Holden. And so it was Barry, her husband, Wade, and me were like the giant heads behind them. And they shot one scene and everything went fine. And then we took a break and I had like heat stroke or something. And I was like so wackadoodle and I was, I had to sit down in the shade and they called the scene and they're like, where's Tasha? Where's Tasha? And they're like, she's like, she's like freaking out. She's like, she can't get up. And I was like, oh man, we got to shoot it anyway. So they stuck someone else in there. But I was like, I missed my big chance to have my face on the screen. So I was always kicking myself after that. <laughs> I have one of those embarrassing stories too. Yes. In the diner, I got sick. I don't know from what. And they took me out and I went to the side and Jim Carrey came out of his way after and came up to me and made sure I was okay. Well, I was just going to say Jim Carrey was really gracious, especially those diner scenes. We were cramped in a very small space, lots of us, quite a few of us. Um, and he, between takes, would cut, you know, make jokes and stuff. And one, my, one of my, my favorite memory, which I've repeated many times from being a, an extra in the Majestic, was my Jim Carrey moment when he dug into the camera lady's basket. The, you know, the big cameras have baskets hanging from them. And they're right next to you when you're an extra on the set when you're in a tight space. And he reached into her basket and he grabbed out her Altoids. It was a tin of Altoids. Totally helped himself to her stuff, and as he would. He's such a character. And then he turns to me and he says, would you like an Altoid? And I took one, of course. And he turned to two or three other people right around where we were. And I said, you know, when Jim Carrey offers you an Altoid, you take one. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know, my favorite Jim Carrey moment was in the um, cemetery scene. Remember how long that went on because they were hoping for really bad uh, weather, which is typical. It would have been foggy in Ferndale, but we happened to get a stretch of really good weather. So the sky and everything was too cheerful for a cemetery scene. So that scene went on and on and on, take after take. And I just remember one time Jim Carrey got on top of the casket and he was like riding it like a horse. You know? <laughs> Do you remember that? Uh, my buddy who lived in the house right next to the cemetery was filming Jim Carrey doing, doing the cemetery scene. And remember Doton? Remember Jim Carrey's, uh, what was it called, bodyguard? Totally saw my buddy filming Jim Carrey and just gave him a look like, I'm going to kick your ass type of thing. One of the professional actresses that was next to me, the, um, I think her name was Susan Willis. Yes, it was. She, you know, she was really cordial, but there was another actor there who didn't appreciate that Jim Carrey kept going out of character. They were trying to stay serious and sad for the funeral scene, but he didn't. He went in and out of it with his jokes and stuff, so it didn't seem to bother him. 
You know, it was an interesting um, situation with the actors there, particularly with folks who are not experienced set professionals. Um, I know that part of my speech was that you, we were not supposed to approach the actors, to generally to give them their space, not ask for autographs, that sort of business. And I think for the most part, folks were really, really good about that. It was actually just at one point that uh, because people were approaching actors um, and that if that was happening, apparently I was not being strict enough, that I was being too friendly. It was a small movement to have me removed from the film, believe it or not. I no don't way. believe that. Uh, <clears throat> we would have we uh, definitely not let them do that. You were a great, <laughs> great guy. We, you made it so fun. I loved going. I called it going to work. I, I still worked, but, you know, my, my regular job, they made it allowances for me and covered my shifts for me so that if we had to film, because, you know, I'd wait every morning for that call or the evening, they'd say, you have a call time for tomorrow. And in the morning, they'd call and confirm it. And sometimes it happened on my days I work. And yet my work was very good about it because they all felt like they were part of the movie, too, by allowing me to be part of it. I got let go from Village Baking and Catering because of this movie. Hmm. Yes. He said, you, you care about this movie more than you care about the bakery. And I said, look, dude. I said, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for me. I'm going to do it. There's no way anything gets me up at 5 a.m. to ride my bike and get on movie set to put a pound of makeup on my face, which I really didn't like, and put on a wig that's itchy as all hell because I knew it was it's just something, no, but not a lot of people get to do something like this. So you make your sacrifices and that's the way it goes. I thought of one thing you were talking about, Skid, you were talking about interrupting. Um, you know, and acting for asking for autographs or bothering the the principal actors. I had a great experience when we were in holding at the uh, theater. There were quite a few of us. They joined together the funeral extras with the FBI extras. And we were right. all at the Ferno Repertory Theater in holding. The, you know, you remember that. We had so much time waiting and sitting outside in front of the theater on Main Street, Ferndale. And we just bonded. And somebody decided they wanted to have a picture of all of us extras. And there were about 20 of us. And one of the gals said, oh, I'm going to ask this guy to take our picture after we got all assembled to have our photo taken. And I cringed because I knew who she had just asked to take our photo. A guy who was not currently on set working, who was on a day off, who was walking down Main Street, Ferndale. He says, oh, of course, I'd love to. He takes our picture. And, and I'm like, <clears throat> you know, like, we're going to be in trouble for this one. He takes our picture. And I said, you know, really, we should be taking your picture. And he goes, oh, no, no, this is a lovely local theater. And I would love to take your photo. And it was David Ogden Styers. And I have the photo he took. <laughs> he took a gorgeous photo of us. No joke. And I said, thank you so much, David. Appreciate it. And he winks. He doesn't want them to know who he is. So here we are, 20 people, and I'm, I think at that point I was the only one who knew who he was. And I thought, we're going to be in trouble, but we didn't get in trouble. And he hung around for a little bit and talked theater with us as extras because he thought we were so fortunate to have the repertory theater in our little town. So uh, kind of back to us having to be respectful of the actors who were on set, I mean, I, I think it was one of the things you told us, Skid, too, is like we have to remember that they're doing their job. And so you wouldn't have anybody, like if I was sitting at my computer writing a story, if someone came in and kept interrupting me and wanted to take my picture, wanted to talk about going to dinner that night or something, I would totally come out of my focus on my job. And that's what we would be doing to the actors who are trying to concentrate on their lines, trying to get into character. So I understood it when you put it that way. 
Um, I think as small town people, we were a little offended that we couldn't even say hello and be gracious, you know, as they walked by. And so I remember one time Jim Carrey was coming down the sidewalk because we're going to do a scene at the Majestic. And I was tying my shoes on a bench. And I was like, do I even look at him? I know he's coming. But I looked up and he just said, good morning. And I was like, oh, good morning. I could actually say something to you because you said it first. So that was kind of interesting. It was, it was hard to hold back being a polite person for the sake of, you know, the artist being in his role. I was able to get to know James Whitmore because he talked to me first, you know, on the, the, in a diner scene. And so his collar kind of popped up and it was, I was thinking of continuity between scenes and his collar had popped up and he was getting ready to do another scene. And uh, Frank Darabont was really patient with James Whitmore because he had a cough. And I think James Whitmore could have taken all day between scenes because he had so much respect from everybody, myself included. So I, I said to him, um, I'm going to straighten your collar if it's okay. James Whitmore looked at me and a little twinkle in his eye and he said, are you in the right union? <laughs> and that made me that that you know what a, what a gentleman he knew that I was just an extra and and maybe would get the joke you know but and I fixed it and then after that you know a day or two later he came and talked to my daughter and I and let post for a picture with us and he was just he was just really it was something to be in his presence you could just feel feel his um I don't know just how amazing he, he was another thing that was really cool was that the dining you know, the dine or the diner, I should say, was created for that one corner and that one scene. And it fit in so perfectly with Ferndale that we were all hoping it would have been a real diner and they could have kept it there because it, it was just a, a really great addition to the Main Street Ferndale. Yeah, that diner was so cute. And we did look into that. But like I was saying, my brother-in-law was the mayor of Ferndale at the time. And so I got the inside scoop that it was not built to code and it could not be left there. I had forgotten that we built the diner from scratch just for the movie. Um, and it really did, as, as you say, integrate well into the atmosphere of the town. It was, it was interesting. It was, it was just a really cool process from start to finish. Somebody comes in and, uh, from, you know, and, then some, and then they all leave. Well, to me, it was an emotional deal when I found out that they were taking certain people to Mendocino. And I remember I bought Gilda flowers, wardrobe, who was, was right on Main Street. And I went and I gave Gilda flowers. And I said, I'm going to miss you so much. And I was crying. And she goes, honey, why are you crying? And I said, I, I didn't get picked. And she goes, no, you're coming with us. You're coming to Mendocino. And that, to me, that was another, like, month I had to take off of school. It was worth it. Initially, a lot of us didn't get picked to go to Fort Bragg, Mendocino. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't on the, I wasn't on the get picked either, either somehow. And I, but I said, oh, I really wanted to go. And I, I talked to somebody and they said, oh, no, you and your daughter are both going. And so it was kind of the same thing. I don't know how they added us on, but we took a bus and there were, I don't know, under 20 of us that went on that bus. I think the deal with Mendocino was we had to put people up overnight that we brought down from Ferndale. I believe the original intention had been to cast local folks to fill out some of the large crowd scenes we shot down there. But for whatever reason, whether it was a challenge finding people or because wardrobe had invested so much in getting all of you ready with the outfits and such, that wardrobe waited and said, no, we need to bring more people from Ferndale. 
even though you're going to have to pay for extra hotel rooms and extra transportation, it's in the bigger picture, that's going to be a better approach for what we're trying to do. And that went up through the ADs and to Frank, obviously, and the producers, and that's the decision that was made. But that's why we added people late to the Mendocino part of the trip. Makes sense. Kid, I'm so, I'm so glad that happened because that was the most fun for my daughter and I. We had a blast. We made a vacation out of that. People lightened up and I, and as well as us. And we had a good time in the evenings and um, during the off times. And we got to know a lot of the people there that were part of the Majestic, the bigger picture, not just the extras. And that was really fun. I do remember that in Fort Bragg is where we were able to give Skid, where we were able to give you your parting gift because we were a little bit rowdy and you occasionally had trouble getting attention from all of us or some of us, Raquel. Well, we gave you a bell so that you could ring to get the attention of your people. <laughs> like a cowbell, like a Ferndale cowbell. Yeah, it was like it was a big bell. I don't remember what it looked like. And you you laughed because we said, you know, for your future extras in your next movie, uh, if you have as much trouble getting their attention as you did ours on a rare occasion, you'll you might need this. That's fun. <laughs> That's very nice. Uh, I remember again, as I mentioned earlier, this was actually my first job as a member of the Directors Guild. I had obviously done some work with background before when I was a trainee, trying to set up the system and that everybody felt like they were participating and that we were really on the same team. Um, as I alluded to earlier, I felt that if you took good care of folks up front, people would do amazing work. I think it was the snacks that kept us coming back to you because I remember poppycock was like one of the snacks that we got to eat when we were like in holding. And I had an addiction to poppycock after that. So <laughs> I don't know if it was the food, but we were, we were there ready to serve you. Raquel, you had mentioned originally being cast as a stand-in, which for folks who are not aware, when the actors are getting ready hair makeup, we'll have folks be where they need to be on scene so that the camera and lighting department can get set around them. Um, while Raquel, you ended up not doing the stand-in work, I think Natasha and Anne, you both had some stand-in experience on the film. Um, yes, I was a stand-in for the character Mabel of Mabel's Diner. And I think I was picked mostly because I was her height and they were looking for someone at least, you know, her body type. And so what I had to do is reach up to the clock that was in the diner as if I was fixing it or something because then once the camera was focused and focused in on the clock and me and all that kind of stuff then I would step out and then she came in and did her scene and I got paid a little bit more than the extra amount so that was fun you took my job (laughs) (laughs) I was they wanted me to be Mabel's stand-in too but height wise uh you take it yeah (laughs) I'm only five five yeah I was five seven (laughs) yeah there you go (laughs) I mean height is the most critical aspect for a stand-in to be honest and then after that oh is that right after that skin tone and generally sort of match other aspects but height is the most critical thing because you're off by a couple of inches and person could be completely out of frame. Mm -hmm. So how about you, Anne? Oh, thanks, Natasha. Um, I was a stand-in for Susan Willis at the Skunk Depot or the uh, train depot in, um, in Fort Bragg. And I was so tickled because it was like one of our last days of filming. And I think that they, they just looked at who was there. Um, There was a small group of extras and they needed a last minute stand-in and they, they picked me, and I felt like a star. They were singing little light things on me and having me pose. And, and yes, we did get paid a little bit more. As I recall, we were paid $75 a day to be extras in the Majestic. At least I was. Maybe other people were paid a different amount. And my sister, Patty, 
bless her soul, talked to someone, one of the managers from the locations and said, you're paying my sister to do that? You do know that she would do it for free. Heck, she'd probably pay you to let her be in the movie. <laughs> and, that's, and that's a true story. I would have done it for free. I don't think I would have paid them to let me be in the movie, but maybe. Um, I was just going to add, we had a lot of downtime between takes because I think that's what extras do, spend a lot of time waiting around. And I, I like to kind of position myself so in Skid, you know, the boss man, when you enter the room, I was always trying to be discreetly perched for selection because you would go, I want you and you and you and, you know, you'd skip over some people and you, I just need five, you know, and it, that was a lot of fun to try to get picked. And there was one guy named Scott who said, man, you get picked a lot to me. And I said, well, it's because I've, I've watched who he picks, how he picks. You don't want to look too eager, but you got to be present and visible. <laughs> and it, true, true, true. So then this, this younger, this guy who was you know, a bit younger than I was started standing by me and like wanting to be my partner for this stuff because he goes, you've been in every scene. And yeah, little tiny flashes in the back of four of the scenes, four of the major scenes. Yes, in the movie. I did figure that out. Yeah, but Anne, we were on to you because like I was watching you work in the room and work in skid. I'm like, oh, is that how it's done? You know, but <laughs> I try to like scooch up too. But at a certain point, didn't it like skid? You would know this. I remember them saying there's like certain key faces they were trying to get into the scene so that you could always identify the townspeople and know you were in Ferndale or Lawson. Um, so it seemed like there was like certain faces that you needed to get into most of the scenes. Was that right? It's quite possible. I don't remember that specific direction. And also remember in a setup like this, I actually wasn't on set all that often. And so whatever they were deciding to do as far as continuity or how they wanted things up in the town, they would give me specific directions for who they wanted or um, guidance on clothes or how they're going to fill it out. And I was sort of the delivery man, if you will. I spent a lot of time with you guys in holding and making sure things were good and that our setup had run well and then just pulling the folks to set no, we all worked on it together as well. And I have to honestly say it was a tremendous experience for me. There's several of us that are still friends. From day one is when I met them and, you know, we really clicked and we had the shared experience. And every now and again, we talk about those majestic days. Natasha, I think we mentioned before to Skid that that group of us women, there were about maybe eight of us. We continued to meet like monthly for lunch. And then it kind of became maybe annually. And then it kind of faded out. But we did. We went to each other's homes afterwards. We made lifelong friendships after our experience with the Majestic. Yes, I agree. You, you're around people for 10 or 12 hours a day and you have a lot of downtime. So you're going to be talking to people and, and asking life questions and, and you really hit it off with everybody because we're all in there for the same reason. I remember this. I remember all this. This is going to be a big part of my life. And I tell people about this all the time and everybody's when they go, oh, I've seen that movie like 15 years ago. And they're like, you were in that? And I'm like, yes, I have FaceTime. With everything said and done, we got pampered. We got treated well. We were, we definitely, between Castle Rock and Warner Brothers and Skid, your management being our immediate upline, I think we were treated so well and have such great memories. Um, and Skid, you know, when you guys going to do another movie in Ferndale? We're, we're, I'm still here waiting for the next movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll let people know and, and I'll do what I can to, to pull in your direction. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly an argument for it is it was a great experience. And honestly, ladies, a wonderful catching up with you guys about today.
Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. And that concludes our discussion of The Majestic. Thanks as always to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. And please tell your friends. Your recommendation is the best way for us to reach more listeners. Email me your feedback via skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. On both of those platforms, we're at podbelowtheline. You can also find photos and other supporting materials for a lot of the episodes on Facebook. That's at Podcast Below the Line. Next episode, we'll be discussing Snakes on a Plane, the 2006 Samuel L. Jackson movie that became an internet sensation even before its release. Talk to you then.